Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our conversations rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss why dieting actually predicts weight gain over the long run, how you can build a health style of habits that can accumulate small advantages and create a healthy lifestyle over time, how habit loops are formed, and how you can leverage neuroscience to create habits that stick the concept of mindful eating and how you can use it to transform your relationship to the meals that you eat, and much more with our guest, Daria Rose. The Science of Success continues to grow with almost 850,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener emails and comments all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER to the number 44222 or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. 
In our previous episode, we discussed why you can't outthink your emotions, the relationship between trauma and our mind-body connection, how to start listening to your emotions, the power of hypnosis, and how to drop into your body to experience what you're truly feeling with Renee Brent. If you want to really tap into your emotions, listen to that episode. Today, we have another fascinating guest on the show, Dr. Daria Rose. Daria is a neuroscience PhD and the author of the book, Foodist, using real food and real science to lose weight without dieting. She's also the creator of Summer Tomato, a blog where she teaches others to form healthy food habits by combining neuroscience, mindfulness, and nutrition. She's been featured on the Today Show, Oprah, Time Magazine, and is recently named one of the 100 most influential people in health and fitness. Daria, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on. So for listeners who, who may not be familiar with you and your story, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I'm such a geek. <laughs> Basically, I grew up in Southern California during sort of the Baywatch era in the 90s. And my mother was a chronic dieter. And I just thought that that's how women were supposed to live. And so I started dieting at age 11. I didn't have a weight problem. I just was like have doing what my mom did, which was having chocolate milkshakes for breakfast that are supposed to make you lose weight, which is awesome if you're an 11 year old, but it started a bad cycle where I went through basically every diet under the sun, you know, low fat, low carb, cabbage soup, grapefruit, you name it. Eventually I started running marathons. In the other part of my life, I went to college, studied molecular biology and neuroscience, and then went on to get my PhD in neuroscience. And, you know, this whole process took like 15 years. And at some point I'm like, so, you know, I feel like when most people think about like health and weight loss, they, they think that if they had more willpower, they'd be better at it. But like, I'm like one of those like type A people with like really strong willpower. And like, I would do the diets and I would do them for years and I would do them well and they would work for a little while. And then, but I was so unhappy. So eventually I was just like, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything that the authorities in every realm are telling me to do. And I'm still miserable and I still don't have the results I want. I was still unhappy with my body. And so I decided that, you know, I was in a second year in my PhD program. And at this point, like I could actually read a scientific paper and understand it, which is hard to do. It takes a lot of training to get there. And I was just was like, I'm going to solve this problem and I'm going to stop reading the glossy magazines and, and the diet books and I'm going to read science. And so I would spend my nights and weekends reading everything I could get my hands on. At first I was looking for like the perfect diet, but eventually I, I realized that dieting doesn't work, that everything I had tried was actually the reason I was struggling. Like dieting is actually a better way to gain weight than to lose weight. And, and that what I really needed to do was stop all that nonsense, focus just on real food and building tiny habits around sort of good, normal, healthy things that like my grandma would tell me to do. And that would work. And I didn't really believe it at first because it just sounded too good to be true, but I tried it and my life completely changed. Like I was not hungry for the first time in my life. I enjoyed food for the first time in my life. And even while being happy, I slowly lost weight. And over the course of the years, I ended up losing, oh gosh, I got, I hit my goal weight. And then I went like something like five or seven pounds below that. And I was so shocked by how like everything I'd learned was wrong and how easy and wonderful it was to do the right thing. And I was like, I have to tell people about this. So I started a blog and wrote a book. <laughs> so I'd love to kind of hear, you know, you talked or you touched briefly on the idea that dieting actually can can predict weight gain. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and maybe talk about some of the, the data that, that demonstrates why dieting 
isn't that effective as a strategy. And maybe also just for listeners who, you know, could have sort of some different concepts about this. How do you define the concept of dieting? Great question. So I, I define dieting as a restrictive sort of li- limit on your food intake. It usually involves some exercise as well, but not always. But for me, so, so just to be clear, and this is actually a, a, like a really subtle point that is often missed in, in the dieting industry, you can lose weight on any diet temporarily. Like they work temporarily, but I don't want that. Like, you know, I like, I don't want to just do something for a little while and then like fit in, like look good in one picture and then be done with it. Like I want, I want to solve this problem. And so when I talk about success, I'm talking about long-term success. And one of the first, and by long-term, I mean like two, three years. And so one of the first pieces of information I found when I was, when I was researching this stuff was that over like, I think it was the, the, the study that really blew my mind. It was something like over a three-year period, having dieted during that period was a better predictor of weight gain than weight loss. And they were actually worse off than people who never dieted at all. So it, it was actually net bad to diet. And so I, I was like, yeah, it's a shocking thing to hear, right? You, I've been dieting my entire life. Basically, everyone believes that if you want to lose weight and like get healthy, you have to like stop eating fat or stop eating carbs or whatever. And that's just not true. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> So in some ways, this is kind of the the distinction between the concept of diet as the noun versus dieting, the action as a verb. And there's there's a big difference in terms of having sort of a healthy diet versus pursuing dieting as an activity that's kind of a fad-driven thing that doesn't necessarily produce real sustainable results. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that distinction is so incredibly frustrating to me that I came up with a new word called health style, which, you know, it's... For me, that means it's a it's a combination of focusing on your health, but also creating a lifestyle for yourself. Kind of so it's more individualized and it's also more of something that you do always rather than something you're doing temporarily. So how would you describe the average person or maybe the average American's relationship with food today? The average American. <laughs> Who's that? I, I think that most people have actually kind of a messed up. I, I mean, when I'm talking, when I say most people, I'm like, I'm talking about like what I see in the media and what I hear when I talk to people about health. I see two things. I see a sort of rejection of the idea of restriction to by a, a large group of people. They're like, you know what? Screw it. I love food too much. And they'll take that to a really unhealthy level where it's just like anything goes all the time. And on the other side, I see if this belief that if you want to have a a result different than that, it requires a tremendous amount of suffering, whether that's denying yourself things you want, forcing yourself to eat bland, boring things you don't like, you know, forcing yourself. I mean, The Biggest Loser is a great example. Like the way that show is, it's like people who they start out like just not caring at all and just really having this, this issue where they hadn't really dealt with it in a long time and then deciding to do something about it and going to the entire opposite extreme where they're working out seven hours a day and eating like 1100 calories when they're, they should be eating three or four times that for their body size and just creating this super, uh, I just, it breaks my heart. It's like such an, a broken way of dealing with a problem. And it's, it's, that's why I do what I do is because I find that I know that doesn't work there's data that it doesn't work. And, and it's on top of it, it's torture. I mean, it's a, it's a torturous way to live. Like it's sort of set up so that you can't win. You're either miserable 
because you're starving and not doing anything you like, or you're miserable because you're obese. Like those are the choices. And that's, I, I say, screw that. <laughs> so how would you, how would you think about the, the kind of distinction? I know this is a concept you've talked about in the past between the, the dieter's brain and the normal brain. So that's a, that's a really good question. So, right. So there are a lot of reasons that dieting is more likely to long-term cause weight gain. You know, there's issues of metabolism and stuff and that everybody kind of talks about that. But one of the big things that people don't talk about as often is the psychology that comes from restricting yourself a lot. So for instance, somebody who has dieted tends to have a moralization of their food. So there's foods that are like good and foods that are bad. And if you eat the good foods, then you are good. And if you eat the bad foods, then you are bad. And so when you would go ahead and eat, or so basically, so you could eat good all day long, but in psychology, what happens is eventually that takes willpower. And, and if you're, if you're, if you're eating moral, morally, if you're moralizing your food choices and you're trying to be good, then and that takes willpower. If it's funny, it's, it'll, it actually, when you think of food that way, it actually even undermines your true liking of the food. Like what you might actually like the food you're eating, but if you're doing it to be good, you still are using up willpower to do it. And what happens at some point you get tired, you get stressed, your willpower breaks down. And if you're a dieter and you've been doing this, what happens is you swing the other way. It's like a rebound effect and you tend to binge or eat a lot of foods that are bad or whatever. And we'll rationalize this like, oh, I deserved it. I was good. Now I get to do what I want. And this is a, it becomes a mental habit in somebody who's a dieter. And so it's very difficult at that point to renegotiate your relationship with food. And it can be a, a really big problem and it's something that needs to be unlearned. So that's one of the reasons that dieting in particular can, can, can set you up to eat worse in the long run in, in some sense. So one of the main reasons dieting can backfire is the idea of sort of this ego depletion or, you know, sapping or, or tapping your willpower. Right. Exactly. Uh, I know you've also talked about, or actually I'd love to explore just briefly so listeners can kind of understand the, the metabolic response to dieting. And, and I know there's been some research that's come out looking at, I think things like the biggest loser and how your body kind of rebounds from, from calorie restriction like that. I'd love to, to hear a little bit about that. If you can kind of explain that piece of the science as well. Yeah, I wish we don't really know yet. So one of the, well, in the case of the biggest loser where, I mean, these people were put through really, really intense starvation, essentially. Like they were, I, I God, I read somewhere that it was like 3,500 calorie per day deficit, calorie deficit. So that's how much more they were burning than eating, which is so insane. I mean, like that is so insane. And they were working out a lot, but when you're working out that much, it's really difficult to build muscle if you're also starving. So generally your metabolism is run or like it's determined by your muscle mass and also your hormones. And so, you know, it's hard to say exactly why in their case, the, the metabolism ended up set in such a negative place where it did. So basically they even if they gained weight, their metabolism didn't rebound. So they, they still had like a lower, the metabolism of like somebody who weighed less because people with that weigh more tend to have a higher metabolism, but these people, they weighed a lot. They had a high metabolism. They lost a lot of weight. Their metabolism went down accordingly, but then when they regained the weight, their metabolism didn't rebound with the weight. And so they, 
it was basically a cycle where they would gain even more weight because their metabolism was slower, even though they're bigger. And I don't know, I don't, we don't have, I don't think science has a good answer for that, but a big one, a big part of it is that generally if you're not eating enough, you're not going to be able to maintain your muscle mass uh, when you lose weight. And if you lose your muscle mass, your metabolism is going to slow down. So one of the things I recommend is it just losing weight slower and doing it in a way where you aren't forcing your body to, to burn muscle in order to lose weight. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and, you know, building up kind of your base metabolic rate is, is a great way to create a more sustainable long-term kind of healthy body, as opposed to, you know, these crash and binge diet strategies. One of the other things you've talked about is is how dieting can also impact our, and I'll probably say this word wrong, but like our satiety cues. I'm not exactly sure if that's how you say it, but could you could you kind of explain that concept and, and share that idea? Yeah. So the way that your body knows when to sleep, when to eat, when to rest, when to be active is through a series of hormones that as a group, we or as like a phenomenon, we, we refer to it as circadian rhythms. Basically, there's hormones that tell you, oh, it's time to wake up. And, you know, this is what jet lag comes from. It's like your body has a, a clock. And if you th- throw it off, it gets really confused. So it's supposed to eat and sleep and things at the same time. If you're not following those cues <laughs> and you're not eating when you're hungry, you're not sleeping when you should be sleeping, if you're all over the place, it makes it very difficult for your body to know what it wants. And when your body doesn't know what it wants, your brain is confused. And so you can sort of be hungry all the time because there's no cues that it can follow to know better. And you can also, you can train yourself so that you, when you train yourself to ignore when you're hungry, it also means you sort of ignore when you're full and it can be very difficult to recalibrate that. It's, it's something that takes, you have to like relearn how to do that if you've been dieting a long time. So yeah, it's kind of, you kind of, you're setting yourself up to undo any possible chance you have of like natural self food regulation. You, you have to relearn it if you've been dieting for a long time, which is a bummer. So we've looked at a couple of the ways that, that dieting is sort of ineffective and doesn't really help us achieve long-term health. I'm curious, you, you, you touched on it earlier, but what are, what's kind of the alternative or what's the strategy that you recommend if, if pursuing dieting isn't really going to be an effective way to lose weight and be healthy? Excellent question. So in my research, when I was reading all these papers and I was learning that everything I'd been doing for 15 years was a better way to gain weight than to lose it, I was like, obviously disheartened and frustrated. But then, so I had another question. I was like, okay, well, not everyone has this problem. Not all humans have this problem that I have. I'm particularly crazy. So I was wondering, what is it that people who are naturally thin or have always been thin, what do they do? What do they eat? And turns out they never diet. And most of them have very simple rules that they have in their own brain to just keep them sort of in line and they focus on real food. They don't worry about macronutrients, carbs, fat, whatever. And they just sort of do little trials to figure out what works for them. And they just live that way. So those are all habits. And this is a a very different approach because habits 
don't require willpower. Habits are things that they're like little loops that you create in your brain that happen automatically in response to some sort of trigger, whether that trigger be something in your environment, like you see something on TV or it's the time of day or something like that, or an emotion or internal trigger. Like I just woke up in the morning, my circadian rhythms are telling me I'm hungry type of thing. And so when you can take habits and if you have enough of them that build health, eating vegetables, getting regular activity, like physical activity, sleeping well, eating mindfully, eating at certain times of day, then you can build up. This is, this is exactly what a health style is. So I I think your health style is all those habits, all those little habits that add up to a healthy or unhealthy person. And what's cool is you can just tackle these one at a time. And each one of them is so much easier than like starving yourself or like never eating sugar again or something really hardcore that most diets will do and recommend. And it allows you to find little tiny things you love. And also you can, you can personalize it. So if you're not the type of person who likes the gym, let's say, which is a lot of people, maybe you like hiking or maybe you like swimming or maybe you like playing basketball with your friends. There are a lot of other things you can do to sort of have all those habits add up to work for you. And what's awesome is habits, the way they form in your brain, the way the little automatic loops form is that you have to, it's paired with a reward. So the way it works is there's the trigger, whatever is telling you to do some action. And then there's the action. And then there's an, a reward associated with that action. And if your brain like makes that connection, it's like, whoa, cool. And, and the reward will sort of reach back. And, and this is why it's a loop. It reaches back and reinforces that trigger so that the next time you get that trigger, your brain's like, yeah, let's do that again. Until eventually that just becomes automatic, like autopilot. And with healthy habits, that's what you want. Like that's really good. And so, but the, the key there and how this is totally fundamentally different from dieting is that you have to like it. It has to be something you like. Otherwise, it won't become a habit and you won't be able to take willpower out of the equation. So it's a total reframe around how to approach your health. Because instead of thinking, what do I have to do? Which torturous thing do I have to subject myself to today or at this moment? Instead, you think, you know what? I never liked exercising before for X, Y, Z reasons. I'm going to try something different because I know I like that and hopefully make it stick. And so you have to create this this world where you actually like the things you do. And what's, what's amazing is it, this is this, even this whole process itself becomes a loop because once you start realizing how much you like certain things, you start building healthy habits, you start to feel better. And then you really like those habits. And then you start to see results in the mirror and then you really like those habits. And so it's a, it's instead of this sort of negative loop of failure, it's like this positive loop of success and joy. And it's so different. Like I describe it and it sounds amazing, but I can't even tell you how life-changing this is, especially if you've done the dieting thing. It's like such a transformative way to live and experience your health and your body and food. It's just, it's just so amazing. I think it's a great concept. The idea that, you know, we should transition from, from health kind of being, or this health style, as you call it, being something that we should do or feel obligated to do into something that we are, that we want to do. It's kind of being pulled and drawn towards it instead of, you know, pushing the boulder uphill. I'm curious, I can almost hear listeners asking, you know, for, for example, 
somebody who, well, let's just use broccoli as an example, you know, somebody who doesn't like broccoli or whatever, how do you build that habit? How do you train yourself to, to like healthy lifestyles? If, if you are sort of in a place now where you don't like working out and you don't like eating kale and you don't like all of these things that you can, you know, how do you train yourself to become somebody who likes those certain things? Really good question. So yeah, like this all sounds amazing in theory and the devil is in the details for sure. So there's a lot of answers to that question. And I take many approaches for some, for people. So, I mean, let's just, I like the example of broccoli. You don't like broccoli. Fine. So there's many things that I would tell someone if they told, if they just were like, I don't like broccoli, I can't do this. I would say, first of all, there's a lot of vegetables. Are there any you like (laughs) at all? Most people have a few that they like in certain ways. And that's great. So I tell them to start there, you know, start adding things that you like that are good. And, And by good, I mean whole foods, like unprocessed foods and or real foods is actually what I, what I like to call them. And one of the things that's interesting is that people don't actually realize like people, most people don't even taste their food. Most people eat on sort of on autopilot. And while a lot of people that haven't started on this journey yet, they think they don't like that kind of food. Most people, once they approach it with a growth mindset, which is the idea that this is something I can learn to like or learn to do, they end up just completely falling in love with real food and wondering how they ever liked all those other things that they used to eat. And I've, I've heard, I've talked to thousands of people who've had that experience. So, so on the one hand, I would say, just start with what you like and build on that to approach this with a growth mindset. One of the things that was revolutionary for myself personally, and I, I started in the exact same place, by the way, all I ate was processed food and I didn't really understand. I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. But one of the things I discovered, I just, I was lucky and I happened to live in San Francisco at the time and they have these amazing restaurants and amazing farmer's markets. And I didn't, I didn't understand why the, why like at certain restaurants, the food was so good because I grew up in a suburb eating chain restaurants and I learned because this is the culture in San Francisco. I learned that the reason is because they focus a lot on ingredients and specifically they buy seasonal ingredients that are grown from farmers who really care. Like they actually care. Like a carrot is not a carrot is not a carrot. Like carrots grown in season from like heirloom varieties that were built or that were bred for taste rather than transport taste completely different than sort of the stuff I grew up eating from the grocery store. And when you start to understand that, oh, I hated Brussels sprouts when I was a kid, but that's because my parents were serving me overboiled frozen ones that were totally out of season and you try a different one and you realize it's like a completely different experience. Then you go from, Oh, I just don't like vegetables to, Oh, I only like seasonal vegetables or I'm fond of, you know, I, I like root vegetables more than I like leafy greens today, but maybe in the the winter when leafy greens are more sweet and less bitter, I like those. So that is bringing a certain growth mindset to the idea of changing your habits and also a certain amount of knowledge and skill. The knowledge being that like you have to know what's in season and that's something you can learn. That's something you can adapt and learn and work on. And it does certainly help to be able to cook and create and to tr- be able to transform foods in, from raw ingredients into something you enjoy eating as well. So that's another, another factor. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to approach building habits and 
you know, it's not about forcing yourself to do anything. It's about being creative to learn how to love this stuff. And I I've seen so many people do it. So many people do it. And most of them, you know, people don't go back from this stuff. It's like that good. You know, it's not like, it's like you do it for a little while and you're like, ah, that habit kind of fizzled out. Like, no, like this like really sticks because it's so life-changing. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I know you talked about rewards kind of being one of the key pillars of, of forming a habit loop. Can you give me a, a specific example of how pursuing kind of some of these healthy habits can create rewards that let's say somebody who's listening, who, you know, their average kind of meal of, of pizza and beer or something like that gives them, gives them a lot of happiness. How can they create some rewards that will really anchor in these habits? And what do those rewards look like? Great question. So there are rewards. I mean, very simplistically, they come in two forms. There are rewards that are sort of external to your psyche. So 
let's say you work really hard at something and then you get a prize like a money or a vacation or something. Those work for some activities, but they do not work for forming habits. So external rewards are not good. So don't tell yourself, if I eat this broccoli, I'm going to like put $5 in my vacation travel (laughs) plan or whatever. You have to have the reward be internal and innately linked to whatever activity you're doing. So an example is, yeah, you have to enjoy the taste of the food you're eating, or you have to feel really good after eating it. That helps too. You know, it's funny though. It's, we tend to believe, we tend to have a lot of assumptions, put it that way, around what is rewarding and the reason we do things. And the reason for that is because we feel, and then we feel a certain way and then our brains like rationalize and make up a reason for it. (laughs) But oftentimes those reasons are wrong. And so for example, your pizza and beer example, So you might think that you love pizza and beer because it tastes so good. And that might be true. However, if you ate pizza and beer for every meal, you would start to feel like crap and you wouldn't want to eat that all the time. So that's, that's one thing, but you know, we tend to lie to ourselves and believe that we would, if we like let ourselves eat whatever we want, but that's usually not true. Another thing is context and the environment you're eating in and your mental state is essential in your perception of your experience. So it could be that the reason you think you love pizza and beer so much is because you always have it with your friends on, you know, Thursday night football when you watch it with them and you have a good experience and it's not necessarily the food, like the food's fun and it, and that can be part of it, but it could just be that that experience is so valuable for you that like trying to force yourself to eat like a salad or something instead is just silly, but it's not necessarily because the pizza is so good, right? It's because you don't want to ruin that experience of camaraderie with your friends. So you sort of have to be willing to step back a little bit about your assumptions about why you do things and what you want and really question and test even those assumptions. You can do little experiments on your own to, to see what the, the rewards really are. And they're not always the first thing you think. Oftentimes we eat because, you know, we think we're craving chocolate in the middle of the day, but really we just need a break from work because we've been like focusing really hard for three hours and it's, you know, it's been a long day. <laughs> and, and so you may tell yourself, I need to go to the cafeteria and get a, get a snack or something, but really you just need a little break. So you can do little experiments to test that. But if the and, and then you can discover what the reward for whatever habit you have actually is. So, you know, another thing that comes up a lot is the difference between good habits and bad habits, right? And so that this is a way to both break not so healthy habits and build healthier habits is really, truly understanding what your, what your triggers are and what your reward is. You've touched on a few of these and, and kind of mentioned that, but I'm curious, what are kind of the core healthy habits that you recommend people work on incorporating into their lives so that they can move towards this kind of health style, this healthy lifestyle? Yeah, great question. So I call these home court habits. And these are sort of the habits that you need, like the set of habits you need to sort of get yourself personally to a healthy place and stay there. And I want to start with the caveat that everyone's different. So not everything works for everyone and everybody sort of has to learn how to make these things work for them. But I can give you some broad habits that 
often, you know, I've, I've talked to thousands of people about this stuff and what often works for people. So adding, eating more vegetables is like really a big one. Vegetables are incredibly healthy. They keep you from getting, or I think they keep you from getting sick as much. They keep you feeling good. They obviously are low calorie, high nutrient density, and it's a positive, you know, it's something you can, you can do more of. It's not that hard. So eating more vegetables is a big one. The next thing that kind of comes from that is under what do you, what do you cut out then? If you're eating more of something, I, I recommend people, if you're going to make cuts on in things to do, to choose processed foods. So processed grains, like flour, processed sugar, processed meat, processed oils. Those are all places that you can cut back on. But I would, I would focus mainly on eating more vegetables. Learning to cook is a big one because cooking is, it gives you so much control over what you, what you eat and also whether or not you like it, you know, being able to actually make something that tastes good. This is actually one of the biggest habits the, the most impactful habits, one of the most impactful habits someone can have. It's a tough one because a lot of us didn't learn to cook growing up, which is why I created a program around it. But yeah, cooking is a big one. There, You need to have some sort of physical activity. Um, being sedentary is really counterproductive. It's quite unhealthy. It's It's been recently shown to be like as bad as long-term smoking, actually, um, long-term sitting. So, but it doesn't have to be crazy. Well, I, t- I definitely recommend strength training for looking great. It makes you look great and it helps, it does help build your metabolism up. Like I, we talked about earlier, but even just walking 10,000 steps a day or, or something around there can, can have a big impact. I can't think what else. I mean, for me, big habit is I need to have a a grocery store or a farmer's market where I can get high quality vegetables because if I can't get high quality vegetables, I don't want to cook because cooking is no fun when it doesn't taste as good or the vegetables are low quality. So for me, that's, that's a big one for other people don't care as much. They're happier. They're perfectly happy to just cook whatever sleep is a big one. If you are exhausted and tired, you're not going to have the energy to cook. You're not going to have the energy to, to get activity, physical activity. Sleep is a big one. I don't think there's anything else. I mean, one that um, doesn't get talked about a lot actually is maintaining your, just thinking about a little more about your circadian rhythms, you know, trying to go to bed at the same time each day, trying to wake up at about the same time each day, trying to eat at approximately the same time and not all over the place. It's, it's a much easier to work with your body than work against your body. And the more, the more things you have working on your side, the easier it'll be. And another big one that doesn't get talked about a lot either is mindfulness. This sounds, this can sound like a little hippie (laughs) or a little woo woo, but it's actually incredibly powerful. And one of the reasons is what I mentioned earlier. It's hard. Most of us like just go through our entire day on autopilot. You know, we get triggered, we do stuff. We don't even really think about why we don't really, you know, it's, we have this illusion of free will, but most of us are just plowing through our day, being triggered and just doing things and not being very conscious of it at all. And, and that's especially true of your eating habits and your eating decisions. Most of us don't make those very consciously. Mindfulness gives you a tool to do that, to pay attention to your thoughts, pay attention to your feelings, pay attention to your experience and your perception and not judge it and just, just be aware of what's going on. Cause if you're aware of it, of what's happening, then you have a chance to change it. <laughs> if you're not, I mean, you know, people wonder why they have bad habits and, you know, maybe you're stress eating or emotional eating or has something to do with something your mom said when you were a kid <laughs> or something. And they don't understand, they, they think breaking that habit is impossible, but 
it, 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 it will be. It's very, very hard to change something like that if you don't actually know what's going on and you don't know what your brain is really trying to get. So I encourage people to practice mindful eating and generally mindfulness, mindful practices in their own lives to develop that skill because it really is a skill that you need to have to make, to make this sort of progress, you know, if you want to like break really difficult habits and things like emotional eating and things like that. So yeah, I mean, those are, those are the home court habits that I talk to people the most about. And that I find that people have the most sort of life-changing results with, if they can incorporate some smattering of those, <laughs> of those habits. So we've, we've definitely talked a lot about meditation on the show previously and, and are huge fans of it. How would you define specifically kind of mindfulness? Cause I know it's, it's related, but not necessarily kind of exactly the same. And specifically, what do you mean by the phrase mindful eating? Yeah. So this is tricky. So the way I personally, so I've done a, a lot of work on this. So I was, ne- I was a dieter. And dieters do not eat mindfully. <laughs> dieters eat fast when they eat because there's guilt and shame around it. There's, you know, you're, you've spent so much of your life starving that when you do let yourself eat, you sort of go really fast and just dig into it. So I had a lot of difficulty with this particular habit, but I had read so much about the benefits of it. It helps you enjoy your food more. It helps you eat less naturally. It helps you make better decisions, just all sorts of things that you want. You know, we want these things. But gosh, is it hard to develop this habit? I've been working on it for, I'd been working on it for like five years before I really feel like I got a handle on how to do it. So I also went to like a meditation retreat for 10, silent meditation retreat for 10 days. And after all these attempts, I finally have what I, I have my own like working definition of what mindfulness is. So I think of it as being aware of the present moment. And that includes your physical experience, you know, whatever you see, touch, smell, taste, whatever, your thoughts. So whatever you're thinking in words, you know, your thoughts tend to manifest in words in your brain silently, obviously, but like is when you think to yourself things, maybe you tend to use words and then feelings, which is usually a sensation in your body, maybe a, a tension or a rush of adrenaline or some heat in your body or some tension in some part of muscles or something. And just simply being aware that those are happening. It's really hard to do because when, what happens is when you go in, when you get a thought or you get a feeling, the feeling almost is immediately translated into a thought and you want to follow it. You're like, well, that's an interesting thought. I want to like, well, I wonder why that is, blah, blah, blah. And you sort of, you get hooked on the thought. So the practice of mindfulness for me is being, being aware that that happens And when you recognize it being like, oh, I'm stuck in that thought and going back to paying attention to not what's in your head, but your present experience and just doing that over and over again as a practice so that you are aware when you get pulled into a, you know, loop, get pulled into some kind of sort of trigger, really hard to do, (laughs) super hard to do. It's also really difficult, particularly difficult around food. I mean, we tend to practice mindfulness during meditation. That's like what we're told to do often. And meditation is, is hard because you know, it's hard for people to just sit still because they need to practice <laughs> meditation, but also, um, but it's in, in some ways it's easier because you know what you're supposed to be doing. You're just supposed to be sitting there. Eating is more active, right? Your eyes are open. You're, you have to like physically feed yourself. You have the experience of eating the taste, the texture, the flavor, the smells, and paying attention to all that at once is difficult. And also on top of it, a lot of us have so much mental baggage around and emotional baggage around 
food and body image and all this stuff. So it's, it's a chat, it's a, it's a challenge. I actually, I, if anybody's interested in mindful eating, I actually just recently started something called the mindful meal challenge. It's like a five day challenge and it's free on summer tomato. If anybody wants to check it out to, to practice this and it, it's, it's fun to start with eating actually, cause it's something we all do three times a day and at least, <laughs> and, and it's so integral to our experience and our health that just taking some time to learn about how to do it and what it actually feels like to do it and realizing how hard it is <laughs> and how, if you just sort of vaguely try to eat mindfully or just try to be mindful, you're almost inevitably going to fail <laughs> because it's, there's so much distraction built in to our brains, but you know, it's, it's, it's a really cool thing if you can do it. And, and I do highly recommend practicing, like setting aside time in your day to practice, whether it's during food or meditation or anything like that, or even your shower, <laughs> just like mindfully showering, just to have that time to observe what your brain does on its own. Because I think you'll find most of us find our brains are totally nuts. <laughs> like they're so undisciplined and so scatterbrained and being aware of what, what you tend to do is very illuminating. And I know this, this kind of ties into the idea of mindfulness, but how do we battle things like a craving for junk food? Interesting. <laughs> so a craving is a trigger and it is it, it, and a feeling. It's, it's, a, it's, a tr it's a feeling that's been triggered from something. Step one is being aware of it. And, you know, rather than just Oh, uh, anxious, go into the pantry and like eat a bag of cookies. Like that is not what you want to do first, but you want to be, you, you first want to be able to be like, I feel a craving. That's what it is. And have it has a, have a name for it. Recognize it, that it's a feeling. The second thing is you don't want to battle it. You can't make, you can't control your feelings. <laughs> they don't obey the rules of physics that like a physical object does. So what happens if you try to just make it go away or you try to ignore it is it'll, it first of all, it won't go away. It'll manifest in some other weird way. And you will continue to experience this again and again, and eventually you'll, you'll break down. So a better way to approach a craving is to just take a minute, take a deep breath, close your eyes and feel it. And, you know, just feel what it feels like located in your body. Usually there's a place in your body you can locate attention or, you know, maybe your heart's racing a little bit, or maybe get a little tingly somewhere, or maybe, who knows? There's a lot of different ways you get a little sweaty or something. There's a lot of physiological ways our, our bodies respond to feeling. So just feel it. Instantly, you're probably going to want to judge it <laughs> as negative and recognize that your brain wants to do that and just go back to the feeling, go back to experiencing it. Like, is it in my chest? Is it in my, is it in my arms? Is it in my fingers? Is it in my jaw? And just focus on like just taking a deep breath and breathing into that feeling and just trying to be okay with it. If at that, you know, at some point you decide you still want to proceed with your binge or whatever, that's okay too. You know, don't beat yourself up for it because it, it's hard to break something like that that's been trained and conditioned for a long time. But the first step is pausing and being aware of what's actually happening. Usually there's a reason, you know, and that's something you can look into or think about in another time in, in, in your day. You know, what is it that's triggering you? Is it stress? Is it body image issues that your mother created when you were a teenager? Is it an identity thing? Like you feel like you have to be somebody for some, something for somebody and you know, you feel like you're failing. What is it? And, and understanding that 
usually, uh, if it's an unhealthy craving, if it's, if it's like an emotional eating type of thing, realizing that it's, it's something that's understandable and not feeling like it's something you have to fight, but something you need to understand. And I think that's a big step. It could also cravings can also be nutritional. That's another thing. Like for example, for years I didn't eat carbs <laughs> like forever. And then when I would sort of go off the diet, when I, when I went back to sort of eating more normal, I had sugar cravings all the time. And one thing I realized, or one thing that happened to me was when I started eating more real foods that contain carbohydrates that I wouldn't let myself eat before, for example, rice or potatoes or something like that. I, when I allowed myself to eat those, my sugar cravings completely disappeared. So I think my, my body just wanted, you know, some more nutrition. There was a nutritional component that was missing there. So, you know, step one is making sure you have good nutrition, but, but step two is, you know, really understanding what's triggering you. If it's, if it's an emotional habit, emotional eating habit and accepting it for what it is, not fighting it and, you know, maybe work on addressing the original issue and maybe not try to treat it so much with food. Eventually it's hard. <laughs> it's a hard thing to do. I know we, I know we've talked about it a little bit and, and you've used the term a couple of times, but I'm curious, just how do you define or think about kind of the idea of quote unquote real food and what, what is that and how can listeners distinguish between that and I guess whatever the opposite of real food is? Processed food. <laughs> yeah. So I think of real food as anything that obviously comes from nature. So plants grow out of the ground, fish swim in the sea, you know, birds, well, I guess chickens don't really fly, but <laughs> you know, an animal product. Those are all real foods. Processed foods are foods that often they start as real foods, but then they're processed into oblivion. So one of my favorite examples is a flake, like a cornflake. Like corn is a real food, but when you look at a cornflake, it didn't grow on a tree. <laughs> you know what I mean? It didn't sprout out of the ground looking like a flake. So that means it's been processed. So if you can picture how it was how it was created and it didn't involve a factory, then you're on the right track. Perfect. I think that, that that's a simple and kind of easy heuristic to use. Uh, I'm already like categorizing things in my mind. I'm and by the way, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not militant about any of this stuff. Like, it's like, you can eat processed foods. It's not, it's, uh, I, I do, <laughs> you know, I eat pizza and I eat sugar and I eat, I eat all sorts of things. One of the critical things to understand is that you just don't want those to be your main habits, right? Like, so you want your main habits specifically, like it's kind of like the 80, 20 principle, right? Like you want breakfast, lunch, and dinner, especially on weekdays, you know, like those, like that's something you do all the time. You want those to be based on real foods, you know, a lot of vegetables, real foods. If it's brunch on, on your birthday or whatever, like go have whatever you want, like have, have the mimosa and the French toast. If you're most of the time eating real foods, you can totally make room for those processed treats or whatever you want, especially if you love them or your, your evening pizza and beer night with your football buddies and it's fine. So that, I just wanted to, to bring that up because it's not about never eating anything. In fact, saying that anything in your life is off limits is generally a bad move because it's going to result in one of those psychological rebounds. So you don't want to be using willpower, just craft your, the things that matter the most, your daily habits from real foods. I think that's a great point. And it's not about sort of a strict elimination of X, Y, or Z. It's more about kind of the weighted average of your activities should skew towards things that are, you know, real food and things that kind of support a healthy lifestyle but not to the extent that you are tapping your willpower and creating suffering in your life 
and avoiding all the things that make you happy and, and make you kind of enjoy your experiences. Yeah, exactly. So what's kind of one piece of homework that you would give to somebody who's listening to this interview as, as kind of a concrete starting place for them to implement some of these ideas? I mean, you know, one of the things that I recommend for a lot of people who are just getting started is to keep a little habit journal. Like, I mean, if we're specifically talking about food and physical activity, because a lot of the times, like I was saying, we don't really know what we're doing all the time. Like we don't, we're just not aware of it. And so recognizing the things that you do often, again, the things that you do not that often don't matter so much. The things that you do often is you can sometimes find the biggest wins in there. You know, you can sometimes find like, oh my gosh, like I eat a muffin every day for a snack after lunch. And that is 600 calories. And if you add up 600 calories after lunch, every single day at work, that's 3000 extra calories a week. That's more than an entire extra day of food. <laughs> like, like if you switch, if it's that you don't even necessarily want the muffin, you just like kind of want to take a break from work and want to socialize with your friends, like grab an orange <laughs> or an apple and, you know, cut that down to an extra 800 calories a week. And I mean, that can be a huge win. I mean, that you lose 10, 10 pounds in a couple months doing a swap like that. So sometimes it's that simple, you know, to identify that or just eat more vegetables. I always encourage everybody to eat more vegetables. And where can people find you and, and your book and your blog online? Yeah. So come over to summertomato.com. And that's where you can find pretty much everything. My book is called Foodist. My podcast is called Foodist. And if you're interested in getting started, like I said, the mindful meal challenge that I recently launched is a great intro to, and it's free just to, to this whole world and it's fun and people really enjoy it. And it's only five days, so it's not that hard. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to include links to Summer Tomato, links to Foodist, both the book and the podcast and the Mindful Meal Challenge in the show notes. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, Daria, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a fascinating conversation and I've really enjoyed uh, hearing your wisdom and, and learning all of these different concepts. Absolutely. I appreciate your thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T at scienceofsuccess.co. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. That helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible info, links, transcripts, everything we talked about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Go to scienceofsuccess.co, just hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of the science of success.